This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. So I went to high school in the 1990s in Huntington, West Virginia. I don't think my own school district banned any books from our libraries. But just two counties upstream, along the Ohio River, Jackson County did just that. They banned 16 titles, including John Grisham's The Client, Tom Clancy's The Hunt for Red October, and Alice Walker's The Color Purple. If you haven't read it, The Color Purple deals with racism and brutality in the American South, and it touches on incest and lesbianism. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1983. And back in Jackson County, West Virginia, a school board member claimed it could lead to different sex games and violence and other things. The more things change, the more they stay the same. These days, conservative activists are still trying to ban the color purple, here in Virginia and in lots of other places too. What's different today is that it's part of a much bigger movement, and that movement has branded itself Parents' Rights. In 2021, Glenn Youngkin rode the idea of parents' rights to victory in his gubernatorial race. And now, Virginia conservatives have latched onto this idea. But today's parents' rights movement isn't just about banning a few books. Here in Virginia, it's become a code for attacking public education and, frankly, starving publicly funded institutions. In this year's General Assembly session, Republican lawmakers have introduced a raft of bills that would set up ways for parents to object to books and learning materials and to get them removed from classrooms. Not to mention setting up ways to divert funding from public schools into vouchers for private schools. It's the kind of stuff that stokes the culture wars. And at what cost? What exactly is going on here? They want to destroy the public sector. This is the stated goal of both the, some of the dark funders and some of the more uh, right-wing politicians. It's a frightening prospect. That's Bob Peterson, an educator and the founder of Rethinking Schools. That's a grassroots magazine for social and racial justice in education. In the second half of today's show, he'll walk us through the bigger picture of why the right wing is attacking public education and what it could mean if the project succeeds. But first, let's dig into what's going on right now in Virginia. Republican lawmakers have introduced a slew of bills that are of concern to librarians. Bold Dominion producer Arian Ballou spoke with Executive Director of the Virginia Library Association, Lisa Varga. She spoke with us this Tuesday, just after she testified about several of these parental rights bills up for debate in the Assembly right now. Today I had the opportunity to speak out against three bills that the Virginia Library Association and our membership um, oppose for a variety of reasons. And the bills today were um, House Bill 1448, House Bill 1379, and House Bill 1903, which all dealt with various aspects of education and school libraries. And what we see as a lot of legislation being created overall that doesn't necessarily benefit the student, the parents, or the educators. And this has been part of a much longer discussion that has been going on since prior to the gubernatorial election last year. And we saw a trend in uh, people getting very involved in their children's education mid and post-COVID we went from a period in March of 2020 where educators were on these pedestals 
everyone appreciated them and was thanking them for keeping these kids engaged on computers. Um, and as time went on, it seems that there's become a faction of folks that are opposing education in any way um, and doing their best to legislate the daily activities of every educator in Virginia in the public school system. So how is that manifesting in terms of legislation? What does that look like and what are they trying to do? So, for example, in House Bill 1448, Robert Orock is stating that they would like to see an adoption of model policies for the selection and removal of books and other audiovisual materials available to students in public school libraries. This is the exact definition of collection development and a process and a science that librarians have been educated about for decades. We have always had policies about selection and removal. The point is each collection in each school, in each individual school's library is its own living, breathing thing. You have a limited volume of shelf space. And so what are the books that earn their place on the shelf? And the selection criteria typically has to do with timeliness, relevancy, community interest, and the community interest would be the those students and what their interests are. And then also it has a parallel to the um, standards of learning so that the library is supporting the instructional material in a school. And I guess we're surprised to see that someone wants to legislate those policies of collection development, but not necessarily be exploring the collection development as an art or science. I mean, this sounds like this is your expertise as librarians. Yes, I think there is a fundamental misunderstanding of what librarians do. The research that they put into every element of their day and the education they require for us to be called librarians. People have this image of the library from when they were younger, especially if they haven't been in one lately. And libraries are not run by volunteers. They are run by educated professionals and their opinions should matter. And I think a lot of the legislation we are seeing is creating a lot of additional work for librarians. It is mostly administrative things that already are happening, but they are now being legislated. And it's just, it's all being done under the guise of parental involvement, which is not something librarians have ever tried to stop. There's always been opportunity for parental involvement for a parent to challenge a book and say, I don't think that this book should be in your collection and the librarian and the school have an opportunity to explore that book and say, well, is this the right book for this environment or should we be looking at another resource that might be more relevant? If I'll give you some context, right? Back in 2016, 17, there was some legislation that was known as the Beloved Bill that made its way to Governor McAuliffe and he vetoed it. That legislation had originally been created slash pushed by a mother in Fairfax, Virginia, who whose son read Beloved and had some night terrors, and she believed that this book did not belong in AP English 12. So remember, voluntary class, elective, um, level 12 is generally 17 and 18-year-olds. So the Beloved Bill makes its way through, um, and it basically has to do with banning and censoring books, and Governor McAuliffe was not about it. Then when we had the gubernatorial debate between previous Governor McAuliffe and candidate Youngkin, there was this discussion of education in their debate. 
the next day, there was a video that started, was being shared on Twitter of Ms. Murphy from Fairfax saying that Governor McAuliffe did not want her involved in her child's education. So that was trouble, troublesome and problematic because it was very vague. It wasn't actually giving the full story and things just went, I mean, education became the hot topic of the election. And so we weren't surprised when we started seeing some bills come through last year that had to do with parental control and um, certain terminology being used in legislation. So SB 656 passed and people are implementing that um, from the 2022 year starting on January 1st. And we are seeing some um, of the effects of that. And at the same time, there was an issue in Virginia Beach, which is where I live, where a delegate filed a lawsuit against two books, um, against the authors, publishers, and booksellers or distributors of the material. And those petitions were vacated by a judge who actually found in favor of the authors, publishers, and booksellers and libraries for distribution of materials and clarified that books could not be called pornographic, that books could not be called obscene, because what was happening, and this was happening at all school board levels um, in Virginia, people were showing up to school board meetings and reading passages out of context and getting people all riled up and making them think that there was porn or obscenity in school libraries. Those books, you have to judge on the entire context, not out of context passages. And so people were doing what they were doing to get clicks and likes and media attention and um, sound bites. And unfortunately, we had a very loud minority that was getting a lot of attention. So looking at those bills, they're talking about legislating ways for parents to to get involved and affect the sort of decision making process of, of choosing books for libraries and curriculum. Um, you know, let's assume they pass. What does that look like? What is the effect? Going back to what I said earlier, it does create an astronomical amount of work. And so it prevents librarians and educators from doing the jobs that they have already been asked to do. Nobody is giving them more hours in a day. No one is taking away other responsibilities from them. We just keep adding on to them. And I think that education, the quality of education that is provided to those students will absolutely suffer. Um, I do think that we could have a chilling effect on whether or not kids are able to explore their libraries and um, be in touch with concepts that they might not otherwise. There's this element of serendipity in a library of, of discovery, kids finding books. My concern is that the lasso that they're trying to put around this group of a certain number of books, whether it's 12 books or 47 books or whatever, actually ropes in a lot more, many more books that these folks aren't necessarily seeing the long-term problems with. And so I have a real issue with throwing around phrases like sexually explicit when it could encompass so many things. Right. And it also depends on who is defining that word and how it applies to books. And what we have seen disproportionately throughout the country is that a lot of these bills and or parents showing up and reading parts of out of context books are books that are written by or explore the ex life experiences of people of color and or LGBTQIA plus individuals. 
And that's very concerning if you want to shut off the faucet of information about topics that you are uncomfortable with. And also, I'd like to point out that just because you don't want your kid reading a book doesn't mean you get to say that everyone's kid cannot read a book. It sounds like the expertise of of librarians and teachers is being framed as ideology and that these bills are are just, you know, liberty manifesting when, uh, I mean, in reality, it's it's the other way around, right? It is a sensitive subject. And of course, we want people involved in what it is their kids are learning about. But when you start to exaggerate what could happen if this book were outside of the classroom and in possession of someone who was perhaps giving it to a child, what wasn't given in context today is that if you provide a book to a minor that has sexually explicit content in it, there has to be some intentionality for it to be either grooming or indoctrination. And that isn't what's happening here. You know, book banning, censorship, people questioning what is accessible to people has been happening forever, right? We have lots and lots of records of it. Um, I think, you know, my kids loved reading this book that one of my colleagues wrote called Banned Books. And it's a catalog of all of the books that have been banned or challenged in the country starting, you know, back in the 50s. And they would get assigned a book at school and they would come home and look at it and say, who doesn't want me to read this and why before they read it? And that was really interesting for them to say, there are people out there that don't want me to learn about this, right? And the, all of that goes to certain trends, right? I'll say, for example, Judy Bloom, very prolific author in the 70s. In the 80s, her books started being banned and challenged all over the country. Um, you can't tell me it isn't because it was suddenly that a woman had a point of view and was providing girls and or young children, I should say, preteens with some books that allowed them to see themselves reflected in those items, right? We have also had this counterculture in the 60s where suddenly people didn't want folks reading books by people who weren't towing the line and were coming up with new and different ideas and or maybe using hallucinogenics and, and describing their experiences. So it's, it's always a trend when it comes to challenges and control. And I believe we are in a phase of control where folks, they say parental involvement, but it is more of control than anything else. And I don't think it opens up strong conversation between parents and children if what the students are seeing is that their parents are constantly challenging the educational system. I think intellectual curiosity is vital for us to continue as a democracy. And I want us to be able to talk to our kids about the tough stuff because when they get out in the real world, it is going to be tough. They need to be empathetic and understanding of other people's experiences. Part of the way to do that is through books. Lisa Varga is the executive director of the Virginia Library Association. Stick around. In just a moment, we'll hear from Bob Peterson. He's a lifelong teacher and an activist for social justice in education. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. And I want to tell you, we're looking for good ideas to cover in future episodes. If you've ever had a question about state politics, something that just didn't make sense, you want somebody to explain it to you, well, let us know. We might be able to help. You can shoot us an email at bolddominion at virginia.edu. 
Anyway, you can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. Go ahead and subscribe. And hey, leave us a nice review while you're there. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to music and community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. And we're back. So we just heard from a Virginia librarian about some of this year's proposed legislation. Now let's zoom out and see how all that fits into a bigger picture. Bob Peterson is an educator and activist who taught fifth grade for 25 years. Now he serves as a representative on the board of directors for Milwaukee Public Schools in Wisconsin. He's also the founder of Rethinking Schools, a national magazine for social and racial justice in education. Bob Peterson spoke with Bold Dominion producer Aryan Balu. In the immediate sense, what's going on is there's a plethora of uh, legislation at many, at practically all state levels, thanks to uh, dark money, which is coming from the Kochs, the Waltons, DeVos, the Bradley Foundation here in Milwaukee, and then ALEC, which is uh, helping to craft template uh, legislation. Um, and what we see is success in many states by the right, uh, success in attacking school boards and trying to overturn you know, uh, progressive people who are on the school boards. Um, and additionally, even in place, state place states like Wisconsin, where we have a, a goalie as a democratic governor who vetoes ridiculous bills left and right, we are still threatened by right-wing groups trying to take over school boards and legal groups trying to uh, embarrass and politically uh, demean school districts. I mean, we have school districts here that in Wisconsin that uh, have been told, administrators and teachers have been told they can't use the word equity in any internal co communication. They can't use pronouns. It's really taken to the absurdity. But I think what's important is to take a step back and see how things intersect. And I would argue that it, we have to step back all the way to the 1954 Brown uh, decision which really talked about ultimately who is part of the public. You know, is it just white people going to public schools, college public schools, or should everybody? And we know that one, Brown helped to start to redefine public, and that's including a lot more people. And that's one reason I think the Republicans have gone after the public sector because of uh, the white supremacy that underlies our society and because of a tactic that is very effective effective for them sometimes when they use dog whistles and other kinds of racial signals to get uh, people to vote for them. But, you know, there was a huge white supremacist response to Brown. In fact, uh, your, your Virginia Senator Harry Byrd called for massive resistance um, in 1956. And before that, the year before, a fellow by the name of Milton Friedman with the University of Chicago School of Economics, he called for basically uh, ending public schools. He said, privately conducted schools can develop exclusively white schools, exclusively colored schools, and mixed schools. And he has been a factor uh, for many years in terms of the providing the ideological backdrop for the Republicans' attempts to dismantle public services, and particularly public schools. Now, then on top of that, though, we had, you know, moving, moving forward, that's, that's sort of the background, you know, 
Prince Edward County in Virginia closed their public schools for five years from 59 to 64. And then finally, the federal courts said, no, you have to service people. The, they During that time, when they were closed, of course, tax-funded vouchers for white people were given to go to white academies. Um, that's the origin of vouchers in this nation, a pretty sordid origin. And then as we move forward through history, we see the Republicans on a regular basis using dog whistle tactics to try to further their dwindling electoral support across the country. And I, I like to quote uh, Charles Blow, a New York Times reporter who stated, Republicans are using their tied and true playbook of fear-mongering about the rise of otherness and the displacement of whiteness, white patriarchy, and dominant white narrative. Critical race theory has simply become their latest tool. And it's something that you know, progressive people should really step in and help um, school boards and and teachers and students who really are fighting to uh, have accurate teaching presented in their school. The other thing that's important is the role of dark money. And, you know, 2010 Citizens United was passed by the U.S. Supreme Court. And since then, you have the Koch brothers, the Waltons, the DeVos, the Bradley Foundation, uh, the Uline Foundation, pouring money into not only federal elections, state elections, but school board elections. And that's happened in Virginia, it's happened in Wisconsin, it happens in, recently in Florida, where tens of thousands of dollars are being poured into uh, races that uh, would usually you know, just be in the hundreds in terms of what is spent. So something you mentioned that I appreciate is the uh, the existence of uh, dog whistles or these tactics like uh, CRT and parental choice that kind of uh, create a sense of plausible deniability uh, or a smokescreen for uh, what they really want, which is, um, you know, we want more power and want to do things with that power to you know push a, a certain ideology. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what is that ideology that tactics like CRT are serving sort of as a shield for? What is really going on there? Well, I think another part is certainly uh, the homophobia that comes up, not just white supremacy. And that's been a, a growing uh, tendency within uh, the right for some time, obviously, as uh, people have supported and, and LGBTQ plus people have won their rights. You know, it's a way for the for Republicans to um, to again build fear um, fear of of the other, fear of people who are not like them, fear of trans people, etc. And that's um, certainly something which we have to confront. One of the ways that we're confronting it in rethinking schools, and I didn't mention this initially, is that we co lead uh, the Zen Education Project with uh, Teaching for Change out of D.C. And in the, our Zen education project, we promote the teaching of what we could, like the truth in history, um, just something to keep in mind, because in fact, many of the historic textbooks and other things in schools have uh, bas basically excluded the real history of what's come down in this nation in terms of the role of white supremacy, the uh, institution of slavery, and the ongoing continued uh, discrimination and, and racism and sexism and homophobia that is clearly a strong factor in our country. I, I want I'll say one other thing that's interesting. I think interesting. So I I mentioned that schools, even in states where there has not been any CRT 
success CRT organ you know legislation. I don't want to say success because CRT is really a code word, as Blow said, as uh, essentially the latest tool in the line of Republicans. But here in Wisconsin, there's a group called the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty. It's a very conservative legal group. They, you know, they support voter suppression and end of public services and so on and so forth. And one thing, they, because the legislature hasn't been able to pass anti-CRT kind of uh, bills, they went out and approach it a little differently. They've um, asked the MPS, Milwaukee Public Schools, through a public records uh, request to get teacher uh, lessons, teacher resources that have been used over the past uh, several months in, in any way, that, in any time that they mentioned these 10 words, and I'll just mention them, Black Lives Matter, anti-racist, systemic racism, Trump, 1969 project, climate change, <laughs> marginalization, white privilege, Me Too, and Christopher Columbus. And teachers are supposed to send all their resources. And what the, this conservative legal group is trying to do is find maybe an outlier where somebody called uh, Christopher Columbus something or other, uh, and so they could then use it um, in their work to uh, create fear about what's going on in schools and increase what some people say, and I know it's been talked about in Virginia, which is parental rights. And I have to say that, you know, you take a group like Moms for Liberty, which is one of the groups funded by dark money, or there's a number of other uh, groups as well. But Moms for Liberty, they, they want, they claim they're for parent rights. Well, they're actually opposed to parent leave or sick leave for parents. They're opposed to providing childcare on a federal level to people who need it. Uh, you know, so their rights, you know, I, I'm all for parent rights. The best way to do it is through democratically elected school boards and then through, you know, organizing and discussion at the school board level. But you oftentimes what we've seen in the last several uh, months and years is it's just a small group of people who are attacking the school boards. Many times those people are not even from the districts that the school boards are, are running. And so we have a case where we, on the one hand, sure, parent rights. There should be parents should have the right to uh, not be deported. Parents should have the rights to make sure that their children are respected, even if they're LGBTQ plus. Those are rights that I think broaden freedom and broaden what what is necessary versus the collapsing of really rights. Kids should have the rights to read what what. Uh, they want to read. Libraries should have the rights, you know, so on and so forth. You can go down the list, but that's not what the right wing is doing today across the country. And I'll just say that the other thing that's about the right wing, which is important, is that it's they have a particular strategy of starting at the school board and municipal level, building up so they have candidates and others for the state level. I mean, our so-called Senator Ron Johnson um, he talked about a precinct strategy when he said, we want to take back our school boards, our county boards and our city councils. And that's take back from whom? From normal people who just are trying to do what's best for our cities and counties and school boards. And a former Trump advisor, Steve Bannon, he was speaking in a podcast where he said, the path to save the nation is very simple. It's to go through the school boards. Um, I raise those two things, give those two examples to, again, to alert progressives that we need to work with school board members, 
teacher unions, parent groups, and student groups to defend uh, basic rights in this country, defend the public sector, and defend the right of kids to to know um, what really has happened in this country over years and to develop the disposition that they should be involved in helping to solve these problems. Yeah, what's uh, what's so tricky about that banning quote is that, you know, I don't think tactically he's wrong that education is probably one of the most powerful tools for really making societal change. It just so happens that there are two very different projects going on. Um, and I feel like the progressive project has been much less effective at organizing than the right wing project for the last, you know, 50 odd years, probably since the beginning of time. So with that in mind, uh, kind of two questions, one of which is, you know, what is the right wing end game? What are they driving at? And then second is, you know, for those of a more progressive bent, uh, what can they do to try and uh, make change at this level? I mean, I think their their end game is what we see in Wisconsin, which is destroying public sector. Um, if the if the republic if the Republicans had won our our governor's race, they would have basically dissolved the Milwaukee public schools and put it into six or seven different districts. Um, Milwaukee Public Schools being the largest uh, district with people of color, of course, in the state of Wisconsin, which is statewide, overwhelmingly white. And they, you know, would restrict the rights of many people, you know, right to vote. It's, it's very, you know, basic right in this country. That is, there is uh, a big change there in laws that have restricted those the voting rights. It made it much more complicated. We saw this most recently in Wisconsin, where Ron Johnson was almost defeated by African-American Mandela Barnes. They want to destroy the public sector. I mean, Wisconsin now has uh, a huge voucher program. In Milwaukee, there's 122 religious voucher schools uh, that take a quarter of a billion dollars of taxpayers' money every year. And at this point, uh, the Republicans, if they had their way, would make that a universal program and there'd be no longer public schools. This is the stated goal of both the, some of the dark funders and some of the more uh, right-wing politicians. So you take away the public sector, you take away um, quality public education. The other thing is uh, they want to sort of clear the decks so that their main program is to reduce taxes for the wealthy. And you put that all together and we're back to a society that's very even more unequal than it is now, a society that will be incredibly divided. And it's uh, it's a frightening prospect when you think of what hardcore Republicans want to do. People use the word fascist to describe um, somewhat the situation. And I think there's, unfortunately, a lot of similarities between you know the right-wing militias and, and, and what has happened in other countries in terms of how fascism has grown. So big time problems. Um, in terms of what people can do uh, is one, support your local library, support, you know, we had a case where in Wisconsin, a northern suburb of Milwaukee, the library put on their, on their front lawn of the library that we welcome all people in this in the city or something like that. And pretty soon there was a group of right wingers who wanted to take that sign down. But, and they actually got that pass at some meeting, but then when other people heard about it, they said, no, we got to have another meeting. This is ridiculous. You know, so people have to stand up. People have to be alert to what's going on. You know, if you support your progressive school board member and then be in touch with them about what's going on. Similarly, at the state level, there's 
you know, a myriad of legislation that's trying to be pushed through in all states, uh, some more successfully than others, that people have to vote for good people. But, you know, I, you have to walk on two feet as far as I'm concerned. You have to, we have to work to, for progressives in elections, but we have to be in the streets. We have to be at mass rallies. We have to really um, protest. And by doing that, both those things, um, we have a chance to return the, the, uh, this great ship to a more democratic and egalitarian society, something that people have struggled for since the slave-owning founding fathers founded this country. Bob Peterson is an educator from Wisconsin and the founder of the magazine Rethinking Schools. Thanks to him and also to the Virginia Library Association's executive director, Lisa Varga. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Our producer and editor this week was Aryan Balu. You can find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away. Mm-hmm.